This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It was a uh, interesting meeting, the Public Works uh, Subcommittee meeting at uh, Hamilton City Hall yesterday. Uh, Sobe bikes are one of the great success stories, we're told, here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, those are those blue bikes that you see located all around the place, and of course you can rent them for a, a small fee, uh, we're told, and uh, and cycle. And a lot of people are taking advantage of that. Uh, Sobe says that uh, they have about 12,000 active members here in the Hamilton area alone. Uh, and it's great, we, we're told, except yesterday when some uh, members of the subcommittee started asking questions of Sobe and uh, things like, well, can we see an audited financial statement? And they said no. Uh, there's some concern now about the operation, and some counselors are even suggesting that maybe it's time to rebid for that contract and get somebody else in here who can be more fiscally accountable to the city. How did this thing go south so quickly? That was only one of the issues that was discussed uh, to Give us a heads up on what's been going on and some of those concerns. Terry Whitehead, the counselor for Ward 8, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. Morning, Terry. How are you doing today? Uh, great, Bill. Thanks for having me this morning. Well, good to have you with us. I appreciate the time today. Let's let's get into the SOBI issue, first of all. You and Councillor Ferguson had some, some some rather serious concerns. What's what's the concern? What's the problem here? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I want to uh, uh, commend the work to, uh, to date uh, with SOBI and the service they're providing, and uh, certainly by the numbers it looks uh, uh, like a success. I think the issue uh, for us is it's more about transparency and accountability, and we should be applying this right across the board. So we entered into a contract with uh, Sobe. Um, they have had a, a fair uh, amount of success to date with the system and generating revenue. Uh, they maintain on a daily basis the bicycles. Uh, but what was observed originally, I don't know if it was Councillor Ferguson or Councillor Collins, I uh, caught that there's, they're not building up any reserve uh, for life cycle cost uh, of these bikes. These bikes cost uh, over $1.2 million uh, of taxpayers' money uh, provided to uh, Metrolinx. So the concern is, is why would we enter into a contract, and that contract is, in fact, between us and, and Sobe, uh, would we enter into a contract that doesn't have them providing audited statements, one, and two, which is usually a standard for almost every organization, and two, why would life cycle cost Especially when you're, you know, uh, brand new bikes and you don't have a lot of high maintenance, you could start building up your reserves uh, to replace them. Why would the life cycle cost not be built into the contract? And this is how we do business at City Hall. I think that's the concern uh, that was raised uh, yesterday, and uh, staff will be getting back to us with a report. Do you require uh, audited statements from other agencies that you do business with? Uh, as far as I know, almost every agency we deal with, and there was a big controversy, if you recall, a big, uh, with Festival of Friends. Oh, yeah. And uh, they were providing audited statements. As far as I know, that's that's a requirement when you're receiving uh, taxpayers' money, uh, then we need to ensure that you're being accountable. And there's different levels of audits, uh, so we don't want to, you know, I mean, because audits can be expensive as well, as you can appreciate. But as far as I know, that is a requirement. Um, and so... so- was that part of the original deal? I mean, in, when you, when you look at the deal that you struck with Sobe some time ago, Terry, did did the city insist at that time that there be audited statements, financial statements? Uh, no, and that and so I'm not. It's not a criticism of Sobe. So let's be clear. It's 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 it's, uh, uh, it's more of a criticism of the fact that we entered into these arrangements, and you know, staff have an obligation, and so does council, to ensure that we are protecting protecting the interests of the taxpayers of this community. We set out policies. We've had, you know, As you don't want to appreciate, we have internal audits that identify uh, a number of areas where we do have shortfalls in regards to adhering to policies or the lack of. And here's an example, and I guess a question from a cultural point of view is, why would we enter into any arrangement with any organization uh, and enter into a contract uh, not uh, checking off these boxes, such as audited statements and life cycle costs. Uh, and if that isn't the the, uh, the fundamental principles we're applying to, again, to ensure that we're protecting any risk to uh, the community and taxpayers, why wasn't it being applied? Why didn't it come back to council? And, uh, and, and, and not, so here's... here's well, who here's dropped the, the ball, Terry? Who dropped the ball here? Is it city staff? Is it well, council? I think if, if staff felt that uh, it wasn't appropriate, and they didn't say they didn't, they never said they didn't think it was appropriate. But if there was any exception to the rule, you could always come to, back to council, provide the, uh, the the information, and we can have that discussion and make a de- uh, determination. The council was never in a position to make that determination. Staff entered into this contract, and in my humble opinion, uh, failed us on two fronts. 
So somebody should have caught that, though. I mean, you were on council then. I mean, did no one ask questions at that time? I mean, you know, you've, you've, and there's two or three of you on council that tend to pride yourselves as being the watchdogs of, of the fiscal uh, accountability. And, and Councilor Collins, yourself, uh, Councilor Ferguson, and, and, and a couple of others do that. It sounds like everybody kind of dropped the ball here. Uh, well, I think the challenge is that you would, uh, um, when you pass policies and you understand and appreciate that these being applied to all organizations, then it begs the question, uh, uh, do you just have to assume that it's not being applied to yet another organization that we're t- entering into an agreement with? So this is where it falls through the crack. If there's consistent application on these principles, then we shouldn't have to revisit whether we're applying it or not. And uh, uh, clearly in this case, it appears that uh, um, that our policies aren't set in stone and aren't, are not being applied. Let's let's go back to Sobey for just a second, if we could, Terry. Uh, we're talking about entering into an agreement. Uh, Sobey gets the money from Metrolinx. How, what's the city's uh, interest here financially? Well, uh, my understanding was it was a grant for a particular program through uh, Metrolinx uh, for Sobey, and then the city is the... Uh, is you know going forward, it uh, becomes a city uh, uh, Sobe uh, relationship, not a Metrolink. So Metrolink moves out after the, the this contract expires, and, and you have to cut a deal with. Well, well I, I was going to say with Sobe, it may not be Sobe after all. Yeah, they supplied the money for this particular for, program for the startup. The day, it's our program. Okay, so so the Met, uh, Sobe is going to come back to you and and say, okay, uh, now you and I have to hook up a deal here, City of Hamilton, uh, which means you're going to be on the hook for uh, well, the, I would imagine now since they haven't got a contingency fund here or a replacement fund, they're going to be looking to you to replace the bikes as they start to to age and fall apart. Well, uh, that's the concern, and the uh, understand we're uh, about to enter into the contract. It's like bicycles have a ten-year life cycle. We're entering into, the, I guess, the fifth year of the program, and I think I believe we're going to enter into a new uh, new contract. And I can assure you uh, that that new contract will apply some of those fundamental principles uh, and best practice to ensure again that uh, we're protecting uh, uh, any risk. Because if they don't. Uh, um, build some kind of reserve, then you know full well that they'll be coming back with their hand outstretched to the city taxpayers to uh, to offset uh, uh, any shortfalls they have. Well, since the contract has expired, Councillor Ferguson brought up the point yesterday, but maybe it's time to open up bidding for this. Uh, I, I don't know if you can necessarily say this is sole sourcing, but there are other companies out there. Has anybody else expressed interest to take over the operation? You know, it's never a bad idea uh, to have comp- uh, competition. Uh, so I have no uh, issue with, uh, 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 you know, if that's where we're at. Uh, so I'm not sure if this was a five, five plus five uh, contract. I'm not clear on uh, what are obligations to this particular uh, operator. Or, uh, and I, you know, I'd have to go back and, and read and figure out what actually transpired in the original uh, um, awarding uh, this contract to this particular organization, and whether what there was competition, we you know you have to everything's relevant in this discussion. But uh, certainly, I uh, I know Councilor Ferguson and I have been a strong proponents of not sole sourcing and uh, uh, going out to the market and, and trying to get the uh, the most value for the dollars being spent. Now, my understanding is uh, you haven't had any direct contact or conversation about this with the Sobe folks themselves. I mean, this is through staff, right? Correct. All right. uh, again, let's be clear. This is not the operator's fault. Uh, I mean, I hope I'm not coming across and, and no, no, I, I think you're clear on that. I understand. I think this is a shortfall in our system. You know, and you know, I'm going to address something else uh, that was said last week by the the mayor in respect to policy. But uh, if you don't have guidelines and policies and principles in place, uh, then every every time you have an interaction. That means uh, uh, council can't assume that those policies and principles are being applied because uh, they're not there. So clearly, we need to enshrine uh, some fundamental and best practices, uh, and uh, and staff should understand that those uh, practices need to be applied in entering in any uh, contracts with third parties. So how, where's the, where's the stand right now? I mean, you've you've clearly told staff that you want to have some sort of fiscal accountability in any new contract that's coming up here. Uh, is that the message? Do, do you send them back to negotiate now? Yeah, I think, uh, well, staff will be coming back with a report to give us a little more context and in, in what uh, may have transpired. And we need to, and I'm prepared to give staff uh, the benefit of the doubt. We'll, we'll wait for that report to come back. But I can tell you that it was pretty clear that they were getting the message uh, from the uh, Public Works Committee, loud and clear that uh, these fundamental principles need to apply to uh, the, the any third-party operator uh, that's um, getting 
relief or may have to get relief from the uh, city taxpayers. All right, listen, i got a couple minutes left. I know that you had some time on the, at the committee meeting yesterday, too, where you were raising some concerns. Uh, I don't think it's news to anybody that you've expressed some concerns about uh, bike lanes and the implementation of bike lanes in some of the downtown areas right now. And your question yesterday, if I remember, Terry, was about snow clearing on those bike lanes. What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, uh, right now uh, we're embarking on an uh, aggressive plan. And, uh, you know, high level, I support the whole idea of uh, modal shift and, uh, and balance. But uh, you can't do that on the back of a napkin. Uh, you need to ensure that you have policy and guidelines in place. And you need to be able to track uh, uh, costs. Uh, because if you, as you can appreciate, the death of uh, a thousand cuts, and again, it's about accountability and transparency for all taxpayers in the community. I mean, last week you were you're interviewing uh, uh, the mayor, and, and uh, we're talking about policy, and he said we don't do things willy nilly. Um, well, I'm going to give you a prime example where we where we do and have in the absence of having guidelines and service standards. Where's that? And that's and that's what you need. So Herkimer and Charlton. Um, what ha- transpired there was uh, in the cycling master plan is that there should be cycling uh, lanes there. No problem. Uh, the, uh, so they're directed to put those cycling lanes in. Then it gets canceled just before the, uh, the election. And then lo and behold, we end up with a, a, a delineated bike lanes with uh, cars practically parked in, in the middle of the road. And um, there is operating, um, annual operating um, impacts with that design. Now, that design was never, ever approved by council. There is nothing in the master plan that says that there was a need for that, those delineated uh, uh, bike lanes. And the other issue, of course, is um, our ambulance and fire department were never consulted. Eleven months after implementation is when they were finally consulted, and that's because I raised the issues. And I can tell you that the, the, the originally as it was designed, the uh, ladder truck couldn't get through because of the width. I can tell you that the ambulance had some real concerns in regards to uh, getting through. There will be changes on that, uh, on Herkimer, and and you'll see those uh, changes implemented this spring. So there's an example of something being implemented in absence of any guideline, any service standard, and we cannot continue doing those kinds of things in the city of Hamilton. We need to uh, uh, put those things in place. The mayor also indicated that we have traffic engineers. Well, we don't have any traffic engineers. We're one of the few cities that do not have traffic engineers. Now, in, back in your day, uh, you remember um, Art Holman, uh, Solomon. He was a traffic engineer. Since he's left, we've never placed him. Currently, we do not have any traffic engineers. We're one of the few cities that do not have them. And on Aberdeen, just to clarify, uh, when the mayor had indicated, uh, when you got an accident, and you and I have talked about this, and it happens frequently, on the 403 Hill, uh, the Aberdeen uh, stretch is an EDR, meaning it's a, it's a... Yeah, that's where the traffic's directed. Detour route, right? Now, when the, 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 the uh, proposal came forward, I think there's several changes. I supported every change. In fact, I even supported the parking uh, throughout the day. The only request, so I was the one compromising behalf of my constituents. At peak hours, just like on every archery road, uh, parking would be lifted. Now, uh, on an EDR, when the mayor said... Uh, that it, it's an override. That means that it won't be any parking. That's not true. And I asked that question clearly in Public Works yesterday morning. So when we have those instances where uh, Queen Street Hill and Aberdeen becomes the relief, there is no policy. Uh, so now that the, the parking's in place, even during peak hours, you've taken a lane of traffic out that's going to further impinge uh, the, the traffic loads as a result of those incidents on the 403. So Again, we need to understand implications. We need to have policies. We need to understand and have guidelines uh, moving forward. That's in the best. But here's here's the problem, as I see it, though. From from what you've just explained to me, though, Terry, and what the mayor said when he was in here for his town hall the other day, uh, we're both and we're all, I think, who are listening to this and and trying to follow this discussion and this debate. Uh, under the impression right now, the council doesn't seem to understand the policies and and things that are in place. I mean, for you to to 
uh, assert that, you know, for instance, staff were not aware of the, of the design of those bike lanes on, on those two streets. Uh, I know that there is a policy right now that departments, relevant departments, are supposed to comment on policies like that, and clearly that didn't happen here if there was ever even a report about it. So, I'm, I, again, I, I know it may sound drab for people to start talking about policy and you have to follow protocol, but if you don't, then the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Well, you're right, and the thing about policy is that it'll drive uh, when reports have to come back to council and we have discussions. When you bypass a council altogether, and that's what happened in Herkimer and Charlton in regards to the delineated bike lanes. No reports came forward, none, to date, until I started raising it. Uh, over months after implementation, no report came back in regards to something that was uh, uh, greater than what was actually asked for in the uh, cycling master plan. So when you start going over and above, then you need to pol- apply service standards and policies with us. And staff are starting to develop those policies. They've agreed that we uh, lack the service standards. Uh, you know, the master plan uh, for cycling does not identify all the locations where it would be ideal to have delineated bike lanes. I think it's time we uh, we put those into the master plan. we got to break it off at this point, Terry. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you for having me. Ward 8 Councillor Terry Whitehead with some concerns about public works and policy or no policy. That seems to be the question at City Hall these days. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. And now we're not going to debate LRT today. But we are going to talk about the way in which it's being debated uh, here in this community. And uh, more specifically, of course, uh, around the uh, the council table uh, over the last couple of years. Um, uh, to get in on this conversation, because you see the the rhetoric that's, that's coming out of this, and you expect that during political debate. We get that. This is a, an important issue. There's a lot of money uh, on the table right now uh, as to exactly you know where that money's supposed to go and where is it coming from, and et cetera, et cetera. It seems to be a point of contention with some people. But, uh, you know, the, the phrase, you know, you can disagree without being disagreeable comes to mind here. But that doesn't seem to, to resonate with too many of the people around City Council, or for that matter, in the community when it comes to the, how this is being debated and discussed. Joining us to talk about this is our former Hamilton Mayor, Larry Deani, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Good morning, Larry. How are you doing today? I'm well, Bill. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Listen, great to have you with us again. Uh, and again, to my point in my uh, my uh, initial comments here, I, I get the point that when it's, there's a, a hot issue like this, I mean, we had them when you and I served on council together. That uh, expressway thing comes to mind, uh, and a couple of other things. Well, oh, amalgamation comes to mind, uh, where a, a lot of us, had, you know, disagreed on this thing, and and, and it got kind of messy there too. We, you know, there was a lot of blood on the floor after some of those those meetings. But I want I want to get your read on what's going on in the community right now. And, and again, I don't want to debate LRT pro or con. I want to talk about the way it's being debated. Right. So uh, I agree, Bill, that, that Hamilton just loves to have a fight about something. Uh, and if it's not the expressway, it's the stadium. If it's not the stadium, it's, it's LRT. And if it wasn't LRT, I'm sure we'd find something else uh, to be litigious about. And that's the problem, that rather than having a conversation, rather than uh, focusing on the facts and the details, it seems to be this polarized um, debate that we have, and you have to be either on one side or the other. It cannot be sort of uh, in the middle where you're seeking information, uh, you want to be told some facts, and then you reach your own conclusion. Um, when I walk into a Tim Hortons, and this has happened to me, uh, the first question is, are you for or against LRT? And so rather than, than getting a, into a discussion about you know, why are we doing this and what might some of the benefits be and what are some of the disruptions going to be? It's right away, peg yourself, wear the flag. Are you for this side or the other side? And then that begins the debate. And I'm unfortunately, I see that happening uh, far too often. Uh, and I think it, it infects the council colleagues who should be colleagues, know each other, uh, and it influences the way they debate. Uh, the issue at the council table, so that they're not talking to each other, they talk, they're they talking across each other to maybe a constituency that they either have or imagine to have. And I don't think that's conducive to good decision-making, quite frankly. The the tone of the debate, uh, let's let's get into that if we could. Uh, it's 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 I think gone south in the in the last couple of weeks. As, as and and that's 
making a statement because I, I don't think it was ever, uh, you know, that that remarkable to begin with. It, it's here's what, and to your point earlier, because I get the same question asked just about every place you go to. Well, what about that LRT thing? And the way you answer that apparently defines you to that individual that's asking the question. Well, then not only do I disagree with you, but I think you're an idiot for having that stand. And you know, how are we ever going to move forward as a community, Larry, with that kind of tone and that kind of attitude? Well, it's difficult, um, but at some point we will move on uh, once a final decision is made. And that in itself, the fact that, that, that even though we think we've made a final decision, it's still up in the air and hanging by a thread, according to the mayor and some of the councillors that I've spoken to, um, also uh, indicates what the problem is. Uh, but, but, you know, look, there, there are passions on both sides of this debate. There always have been from the moment that it was sort of initiated, uh, and when council um, um, had that, that unanimous resolution saying to the province, you pay for this and we're on board, and the province, to everybody's surprise, I think, paid 100% of, of the capital cost, and now all of a sudden it becomes a real project as opposed to a, a bluff that, that I think some of the councillors thought they were, they were calling on the province. But, but the tenor of the debate has always been very testy in the community I'm talking about. You've got the advocates who really believe in this project uh, and have all kinds of good reasons as to why the project needs to go ahead, uh, who have unfortunately in some cases um, gone to the extent of criticizing, whether it's public or councillors, and especially councillors, criticizing them personally for the positions that they're taking. And, and I've used the word vilify on Twitter this morning because there, there has been some vilification of, of positions, which to me seems counterproductive because these are the people that at the end of the day are going to be making the decision. And if I'm a member of the community and I want somebody to vote the way that I think they should, I want to appeal to their better sense rather than criticizing them personally for a position that they've taken or questions that they're asking. But, but we're beyond that. You know, I've seen lots of uh, um, uh, Twitter and social media stuff that has taken people to task personally for the stand that they've taken. Uh, uh, and, you know, calling them liars and, and uh, 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 prevaricators and all sorts of things. I don't think that's productive, even though I do not for a second doubt the sincerity of the advocates for the position that they hold. When it comes to counsel, I've, I've seen counselors also take the bait on that. Some have challenged community members to debates on the issue. Um, and it's always good to have a debate, but when you raise a community member who doesn't get a vote at the end of the day to the level of a debate on the issues, you're giving them perhaps more importance um, in the decision-making process than that uh, than they deserve. And and it also diminishes your role as a counselor uh, when you have everything to consider, uh, all of the opinions, all of the input, all of the facts, all of the reports, to then make an informed decision around the council table because you've entered the form, the, 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 the whole area of politics with those that are in the public realm uh, as opposed to the colleagues around the table with whom you'll have to debate and then reach a consensus on a decision. So, so you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But I, you know, if if we had to have a roadmap on how to implement a major project, and this is what this is, I would say to the councillors: read your reports, do your homework, keep your powder dry, and then make informed decisions along the way, and let the public be informed through the intelligent debates that you're having at the council table, as well as the presentations that are going on around the community right now. And I know that there have been lots of presentations by staff uh, to interested community members on the facts uh, as, they, as they are presented. Uh, and be fair as well with the questions that you cannot answer uh, by, by indicating what the questions are and how you're trying to arrive at answers to those questions as well. That, to me, is a, a much more wholesome process than sniping at each other. Which goes on all too often, and, and not just on this topic, but on so many other topics, of course, at City Hall. And 
the, the thing I've tried to ex- ex- express to the, to the counselors, and, and we've had people on both sides of the issue on this program, of course, and, and when I bring somebody on who's pro-LRT, I hear from all the anti-people saying, oh, that's all you put on. When I bring anti-LRT people on here, I hear from the pro side, say, what are you giving them airtime for? Because that's how you debate. Uh, they, de- they deserve a platform as well, and yeah. we, we give them that opportunity. And I've made my comments about where I stand on the issue quite open, uh, and I have also said... I don't hold a grudge against the city councillors who are opposed to this. I disagree with them, but you know the the, the fact that they've stood up and made a stand on this, I got to respect that. Okay, they've done their research on this and they've come down on one side of the issue. Some have come on to the others. My problem with the city councillors are the ones that are sitting on the fence right now. I don't believe them, frankly, that they haven't made up their minds. I, I think that they know how they're going to vote on this, and I think they should stand up and let the community know about it. Well, and and um, I, I suspect they have a pretty good idea of how they feel about it, uh, but um, maybe because they've seen some of their colleagues uh, pilloried uh, on social media, they're holding their powder dry. But yeah, but Larry, look, you're going to get you're going to get vilified no matter what you do. As you, you, you do. how many years were you in public life? You know, you vote well, you vote white on an issue, and the all the people that want you to vote black are going to come in, and the and vice versa. I mean, that's the way politics is. So, so let me give you an example of what I think is a statesmanlike position to, to take on this. And this may be, if any of the counselors are listening, uh, might be instructive as well. I had a conversation with my good friend, uh, Brad Clark, uh, just recently, who is no stranger, obviously, to Hamilton politics, ran for mayor. Uh, and although he lost it uh, uh, relatively, did fairly well the last time around, he's now out of politics. Uh, and if you recall, this was an issue um, uh, in the last municipal election as well. And 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 you had three people vying for the mayoralty. One was uh, um, uh, Mr. McCaddy, who was totally pro-LRT. Uh, you had Mr. Clark, who took a position that essentially said, maybe we should look at bus rabbit transit as a preferred choice. And then you had the mayor, who at the time said, he was going to strike a, uh, a, uh, a, a citizens panel mm-hmm. to see if it made sense for us. Uh, and I get the fact that then, uh, you know, uh, the province gave us a billion dollars and that sort of that sort of overtook that process. But my conversation with Brad um, just recently, he said this. He said, look, I took the position I took in the last election. But once the province gave us a billion dollars, it wasn't a question of deciding whether we should accept that money. It was then a question of how do we implement this so that it succeeds, and I would say that that's where we are right now. I think that that's a I think that's a, a, a very solid position to take. We've been given the wherewithal and the funding, the capital funding to do this project. How do we make it succeed now? Uh, and and rather than fighting about the project itself for which we've received funding and we've spent some seventy million dollars implementing. How do we address all the questions that need to be addressed? I think that's a, a smart way of saying it. Yeah, and it, it, it's a sensible way of looking at it, but I get the feeling that there's an awful lot of people in the community, and certainly some on city council, that don't believe we're at that stage, that they still think, no, 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 we're, we're still deciding whether or not we can do this or how, in, instead of simply moving on and say, okay, now how can we, how can we make the best possible use out of this? Uh, well, so. they, they, they don't seem to want to understand that we've, you know, to, to use the baseball metaphor, I mean, we're already around second base and on our way to third here, and they, these guys still think they're standing at home plate. Well, so so I read uh, uh, Councillor Partridge's uh, op-ed piece uh, recently, yeah. uh, where she now is questioning her support of the LRT, uh, and and in her case, it's future expenses. You know, how do we know what it'll cost, and so on. I would say this uh, to Councillor Partridge and some of the others that are having second thoughts about that. I recall, and so will you, Bill, when I mention it, uh, a previous councillor from Flamborough um, uh, who sat around the council table and were debating the Red Hill. Yep. And he told us all, he said, you can either do the Red Hill Expressway or everything else. If you do the Red Hill Expressway, you can do nothing else. And you recall that, that the postulation that was put forward at the time was that the Red Hill Express would be such a drain on Hamilton's budget that you will not be able to do anything else from now on. Well, now that that road has been built and we've seen the economic uplift from that road that has actually funded so many programs for the city of Hamilton, we know that that assessment was incorrect. It was incorrect then, and I think it's incorrect now. 
council will make it work. You need to understand what the implications are for sure. But you know that the economic uplift, the, uh, the improved public transit system, the, the fact that council will always have to triage uh, how it spends its, its capital dollars and its operating dollars will make this work. And at the end of the day, if we say no to this, it'll be like the SkyTrain that went to Vancouver when Hamilton turned it down in the 80s. We will be regretting this decision for a long, long time to come. And therein lies part of the problem why this, I guess, has become such a polarized issue is because of, well, maybe the term here is fear-mongering on both sides, on both sides. You know, those that are, are in favor of this are saying, you know, this is going to be the, the, the key to our economic future, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we're going to see massive redevelopment and, and, and investment in this. I don't buy that. It's not going to happen all the way down the line. There's going to be pockets where it's going to be extremely advantageous, and that's good. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I'm supportive of this. Then you've got other people on the other side, very much like the the Red Hill debate, as you mentioned, Larry, that are saying this is going to bankrupt the city. We're never going to be able to do anything else. And neither are true. But but people that, that want to take a position on this cling to those and say, well, that's my, my rationale for being in the position I'm in. And and the the reality is the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. And there are staff reports that will give you that truth. Staff has done analyses on these experts of Consultants have done analyses on these that, that sort of indicate how things are going to develop and what the costs will be. We don't have the final number on the entire cost, and hopefully we'll get that. But at this stage, at this stage, after having spent $70 million, after having set up a whole bureaucratic infrastructure to implement a program that's been approved, is not the time to get cold feet. I think we need to be bold and we need to go forward. The reality here is that when you've got councillors that are going back and forth and, and throwing darts at each other in a council meeting like this, uh, they they all know each other well enough, and they know the process well enough, Larry, to know that you're not going to shame a, a fellow councillor into changing their vote. They're, you're either going to do it with, with rational thinking and, and facts, or they're simply not going to change at all. And and they have to accept that reality. They do. And uh, my, my hope is that there are those councillors that are in the middle right now um, that uh, will not say no to a billion-dollar investment that will uh, improve public transit in the city, in part of the city, um, a public transit uh, system that, that is part of a larger system uh, as well. So when you improve part of the city, you're improving the city. And I'm hoping that that sort of logic will uh, will uh, uh, see us to a, a successful conclusion. The, the term was used, LRT fatigue, and, and I've seen this in a, in a couple of letters to the editor, and God knows I've heard about it on the program here from many of our callers right now. Is, is the public at large, I mean, there are those who are strongly uh, in tune with what's happening with this debate and, and, and look at every little new bit of information or non-information, I guess, that comes out of this, but uh, is the general population just tired of this whole discussion? No, I think that the general population wants and deserves answers on the LRT. I think where the fatigue comes in is around the bickering over LRT. It's around the debate and the way that the debate is going on. So it's not fatigue about the project. It's fatigue about here we go again. Here's another huge fight that we're going to have. Rather than getting the sense that we're all on the same page, asking important questions, but moving forward, it's it's the it's the nitpicking and and the bickering that goes on as well, and I think people are tired of that, quite frankly. Just got a tweet from uh, Jamie, who's a listener to the program here uh, at CHML, Bill Kelly on Twitter. It says enough studies, enough planning, enough stalling. It's as easy as a yes or a no. Let's move on. Uh, I get that as as the attitude I'm hearing from an awful lot of people. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head here. Stop the debating. Stop the acrimony. Just just vote on this. Yeah. Maybe I mean, at, at the end of the day, look, um, I'm, I'm very supportive of the project for all the reasons stated. Uh, uh, but at the end of the day, if we say if we say no uh, to this, uh, it, it'll not be good for sure. It won't be as good a city as it can be for sure. But Hamilton will still move forward and we'll survive and we'll go on to other things as well. But what a shame if we said no to a golden opportunity. 
Well, we'll see what happens with council. Obviously, they've kicked this down the, the, the hall again for another couple of weeks until the, the next meeting, which is going to be, uh, I guess, in about another two weeks from now. Uh, and I don't know whether they're going to even do something about it at that meeting. And, and I think that's the frustration that we feel more often than not. Uh, I go back to the point that, that I think everybody around that council table really knows how they're going to vote on this. Some of them have declared, others have not. But just do it and get it over with. And if, and if you do want to vote against it, then do so and live with the consequences. And, and, and that's all I'm asking of this council right now. In, I mean, I, I, you know how I hope the vote will be, but, but if that's not where your heart is and that's not where you want to vote, then stand up and be counted. And, and indeed, and, and the concern is that it will be kicked down the road again um, rather than making a decision in two weeks' time. And, and, you know, if you're against the project and, and you don't have the votes to defeat it, a delay is as good as, as a defeat. And, and if that's the strategy, that doesn't do um, the community of Hamilton uh, any service at all. Make a decision and move on. Larry Deany, former Hamilton mayor. Always a pleasure, Larry. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, Ontario held its first cap-and-trade auction yesterday and sold out all the uh, the current allowances. What's this thing all about, and is it really going to benefit us? Well, joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. How are you doing this morning, Marvin? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Good. Listen, I, I almost hesitate to raise concerns about things like cap-and-trade policies here because I usually get accused of being an environmental Luddite that I, you know, you don't care about the... I do care about the environment. But I'm not so sure this is the best way to do this. What are your thoughts on, on, the, on the theory of cap-and-trade to begin right. with? Well, let, let's, let's tell everyone what the theory of cap-and-trade is. Let's do so that. Any economy that has ever tried to do this has gone the following route. On a day one, let's say yesterday, we add up all the carbon emissions that are happening in our country, and we say, or in our province in this case, and we say that's the maximum, let's put a cap on that. And what we're going to say to the business community is, okay, that's all right for this year. You can produce carbon at that level. But next year, we're going to ratchet down the cap ever so slightly. So just to use a simple example, if there was a million tons of carbon dioxide released this year, next year, well, maybe we're going to reduce it to 950,000 tons. And we give you advance warning. And why we do that is then you will invest in things for your factory that's going to cause you to release less carbon dioxide. Now, if you can't or you can't build it fast enough, then you buy an allowance. And you buy an allowance to allow you to go over your cap. Uh, obviously, if on the other hand you invested in some technology and you have dramatically reduced your carbon dioxide emissions, you've got extra quota lying around, you can sell it on the market, and that's why we get this cap and trade. On one hand, we're going to reduce it. On the other hand, if you're really good, you can trade it to other people. And over time, I keep bringing the cap down lower and lower and lower, and over time, I'm basically forcing the change. So you're right. Yesterday, Ontario had its first auction of these uh, quotas, if you will, and they sold out. And that in itself is really quite amazing, Bill. Uh, Ontario joined forces with Quebec and California doing this. And the last time Quebec and California had one of these auctions, they only sold 25% of their uh, quota. And that made us wonder whether the business community understood or really were playing along. But yesterday, Ontario was very successful. They sold it all. Also, now the question is, are people simply buying the quota uh, and not planning to change? So the only way this is going to work is not this year, not 2017, but by 2018-19, that as the government brings the cap down, ratchets down the amount of carbon dioxide, we actually see the business community do something. The skeptics, what they're worried about is that the business community has an alternative, and that is to say, I'm not really interested in playing ball with Ontario, so if Ontario is going to do this, we're going to pack up and move to a place that doesn't care about the environment the same way. Oh, like so, the United States, maybe. Right, like Ohio, maybe, yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Maybe they're not doing cap and trade, but they're still close by, so I may pick up and go, or what I might do is move my... Um, my polluting part of my business to Ohio, leave the other part here. The polluting part is typically the manufacturing part. Those are those good jobs, 
sometimes for people who don't necessarily have the highest levels of income, those are the people already feeling squeezed, if you will, in our economy. Is that going to happen? And the problem I have in talking to you about this, Bill, is that cap-and-trade is so new and so limited in its deployment, we just don't know which way business is going to do. Are they going to do the, if you will, novel thing, the right thing, and really reduce their emissions, or are they simply going to pack up and move to other environments that let them pollute? We just don't know. But yesterday was a successful day. I honestly thought today we'd be talking about how poorly attended the auction was, how badly sold those things were, and instead it, it worked pretty well, at least in terms of the sale part of these quota. Yeah, I'd be interested to find out the motivation for the people that bought this stuff up, though. Are they doing it because they believe in the program, or are they doing it to hedge their bet? Are they going to sell these things off? In other words, this could be, this is like land speculation for some people, isn't it? I mean, they buy into this stuff knowing that this is going to be a hot commodity at some point in the future. Yeah, it's hard, and again, it's hard to answer your question, Bill. Some of them are people who've got a commitment to uh, producing and being part of the Canadian landscape. So if you took a look at the list, you would have seen the Toronto Airport Authority. They're buying the credits on behalf of all the planes coming and going. They'll pass any additional fees on through landing costs. But they're saying, we can't pack up and go. We're the Toronto Airport. We can't really be the Toronto Airport in Ohio. Shell Canada, uh, Imperial Oil, uh, Petro Canada, they say, well, we've got all these gas stations here. We're selling gas. There's not that much we can do to make it less polluting. So we've got that commitment where we're staying. And certainly those companies who, who didn't seem to have many alternatives, they were at the auction. The bigger interesting question would be, say, the car companies for General Motors, um, Chrysler, who have promised significant investments in the Canadian economy, they may have been at the auction yesterday uh, buying those credits because they're fine with it at the moment, but as they make longer-term decisions about which plants to keep open and where to shift production, we may see this used as an argument for why they're moving elsewhere. Here's the other thing, that, I, and again, I understand there's not a whole lot of, of evidence at this point because this is a relatively new phenomenon. At least it's not a new philosophy, but I mean, the implementation of this is relatively new, so it's, it's hard to get a track record if we get that, but... Does this really change behavior? In other words, if you're a bad company, if you're doing a lot of bad things and, and, and you're polluting the atmosphere, and I'm a good company, so in other words, I get credits at the end of the day, you have to buy credits, so you, I, in other words, you're going to come to me and say, all right, I'll, I'll buy that stuff. You're still going to be a polluter. You're not going to change. I mean, I understand that you know the government's argument is going to be, well, yeah, but next year we're going to lower that threshold even more, et cetera. That's fine. But it's not changing people's behavior. It's just it's, it's like the luxury tax in baseball. You know, If you go over the yeah. salary cap, you're supposed to pay a fee. Well, the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox really don't give a damn. They've got money coming out their ears anyway. Right. Well, let me try to help you a little bit here. So if I'm a bad company and I don't want to change, yes, I would have to buy the quota from the good companies. And, and so let's start with the good companies. They're getting positive reinforcement then for their behaviors. The better, or I hate to use the phrase like this, the more good I am, the more money I can make by selling my unused quota. The theory behind this, because the these cap is going to be ratcheted down, the bad company can't remain bad. They're going to be forced to do something. Now, what the government is hoping is they're going to be forced to play the game in a better way. That you know, Even if you're happy the way you're polluting today in 2017, maybe even in 2018, 2019, because that cap is still going to keep falling, you're going to have to mend your ways and eventually be a better company. Maybe never a good company, but one that's less bad. The counter-argument, though, is to say that maybe at some point the bad company is going to say, I'm going to pack up and move. This jurisdiction is being unfriendly to me. I'm going to go somewhere else. And an environmentalist would then say to you, good, glad to get rid of that company, because if it doesn't want to play ball, if it wants to you know, ruin the atmosphere for everybody else, we don't want them in Ontario. That's not what we want. Now, way too early to know which way this is going to go, but as it's being implemented, we don't want to too quickly penalize the bad company and also, we, we want to reward, but not too quickly reward the really good companies until we can see just how people are going to behave under this new framework. Yeah, and of course, the other side of that coin for the environmentalists is uh, don't let the door hit you on your way out if you're going to leave. Uh, those, that's 300, 500 jobs, or whatever the case might be in some cases like that. So let's talk about the economic impact. There's that element of it, Marvin, but the other element is, now that this is imposed, uh, you know as well as I do that Economics 101 says that you simply pass that on to the consumer, which is why our gasoline is more expensive now, our home heating fuel is more expensive now, our groceries are going to be more expensive now, uh, the cars themselves are going to be more expensive now. So there's a trickle-down effect, in it, and it's not a nice one that's going to happen to consumers here. What's that going to do to the Ontario economy? Right. 
Well, that's a good question, Bill. So there's two sides to this. You're right. Uh, I, I'm now um, Ford, and I've had to pay for this uh, cap and trade, and so my cars are going to be $400, $500 more expensive. That's going to hit us all in the pocketbook. Uh, and, and that's you know, always a worry then. Is that going to, A, cause inflation, or B, make things harder for people to live? Remember, suddenly that living wage can't be $15.80 an hour. It's going to have to be sixteen twenty or something. But let's also talk about the money the government gets from these. Yesterday, they sold all of the cap-and-trade permits for around $480 million. Over the course of a year, this should generate just shy of $2 billion for the provincial government. Now, what the provincial government has pledged, and again, it's so new, I can't tell you whether they're going to live up to their pledge, but they've said this money is not going to go into general revenue. We're going to use this money to improve the environment as well. How would they do that? Well, one, all that transit they want to invest in, this would help fund some of those transit protocols. So if you can remember the the billion dollars that we've talked about for LRT, I think you've remembered that somewhere in the background. Yeah. Uh, where, where might that come from? Well, it may come from some of this cap-and-trade money being diverted now into transit, get cars off the road. It may also go into a program, and this is, I think, why Charles Sousa's budget is late. Charles Sousa, our finance minister, their budget year began April 1st. This is now April the 4th. Why haven't we seen a budget? I think he wanted to see how well these uh, uh, cap-and-trade things would sell yesterday because I think what the province is going to announce in their budget is something for the average person. It could be a home renovation credit, something to make your house more energy efficient, something to make it um, uh, use less or uh, emit less carbon dioxide, maybe get you to convert from oil to natural gas or, or whatever it happens to be. These are programs that are supposed to be funded. So we'll take a little over here. Yes, your groceries might be a little more expensive, your gasoline, your car might be more expensive, but in the meantime, maybe here's a $1,000 credit for you to change the lighting in your house or to, to make your home, in other words, uh, more energy efficient. That's the side of this that you've not seen yet, but in theory, that could be announced in the budget whenever Mr. Souza brings it down. Well, that's what they've done in British Columbia. Now, mind you, it is it's kind of an apples and oranges thing because they don't have cap and trade. They just have a carbon tax in British Columbia. But the money that's generated by the government, uh, Pr- Premier Clark has actually d- developed this program, I guess, Marvin, that it, it comes back to the to the citizens uh, through a whole series of tax rebates. So it, they say it's revenue neutral. I know that we bristle when we hear that phrase here in Ontario, we're revenue neutral, but it seems to be working out there. It's revenue neutral, although it won't be revenue neutral by person. In other words, some people uh, will be eligible for some of these tax credits. Other people won't be. Those people who are not eligible, they'll wind up subsidizing those who, who can use them. So to give you another plain example, if you've been really – Uh, an environmentalist, you're already ahead of the curve in terms of making your home energy efficient and reducing the energy consumption, so on and so forth, you probably aren't going to need many of these credits to do so. If you've been late to the game, you're going to benefit from those assessments. So it's not necessarily revenue neutral on an individual basis, but from a societal basis, this is not money that's going to go fund, I don't know, education, or it's not money that's going to go fund the police, or it's not money that's going to go fund... um, social housing necessarily, although it may indirectly, because again, social housing, I imagine some of it is in a bad shape from an environmental standpoint. Some of this may see uh, renovated, updated, better efficient uh, social housing constructed along the same way. We just don't know that part of the equation, but I think we'll hear about it whenever that budget comes down. Uh, well, we look with great anticipation toward that date, whenever that's going to be. Listen, one other thing i got to ask you, uh, while well, I've got you here today, Marvin, uh, a couple of weeks ago, you and I had this discussion about uh, some of the pros policies of the Trump administration. And one of them, of course, was a border tax. And we talked about, you know, how that could have negative implications. There's an interesting twist to this now that uh, there's a big, strong push in Washington right now to not impose a border tax. And it's not coming from Canada. I think we, we've already told them how we feel about it. But it's from the American states that are trading with Canada. They're saying, don't do this. This is going to harm our economies. That's, a, that's rather unusual. Well, it's going to harm their economy in two ways. You know, the, the theory is that today uh, Americans are buying Canadian goods for whatever reason. They like them, they need them, they value them, whatever it happens to be. If you impose a border tax to make those Canadian goods more expensive, what in theory you're going to do is punish Canadian businesses because you believe at a higher price those American uh, consumers aren't going to buy those Canadian goods and instead they'll switch. 
what, why it could harm their economy is first, people may say, no, I still need those products. So even though the price is now, I don't know, 10% higher than it was before, I'm still going to do it. And the people paying the tax won't be the Canadian companies. It'll be American consumers who pay, just like our discussion a moment ago about the, the carbon tax. It really will be the American consumers. So that's one side of it. And then if businesses really start um, ratcheting back, then their trade starts to fall. And it's those trade numbers that help create jobs. And those border states are very much worried that something really punitive, especially if it's launched all of a sudden. And Donald Trump is kind of an all-or-nothing guy. I've never heard him talk about slowly phasing in anything in his life. Um, you suddenly do this, you could shake up an economy. And if I'm Michigan, if I'm Ohio, I'm Pennsylvania, yes, I'd love to get some more jobs back into my economy, but I also don't want to disrupt what I've already got. And a major tax like this could throw such a wrench into the existing economy that whatever jobs are gained really would be so inconsequential. So everyone's saying tread carefully in all this. One bright spot for us in Canada is that Donald Trump has had such a setback on the health side of this, he really thought he could go in there and get a bill passed like this, you know, in a day or something like this. He's been put back on his ears, and therefore I think he's going to slow down his whole agenda. Yes, we'll still negotiate NAFTA, but that will start later this year and probably take a year. But in terms of any major changes, I think he's learned a lesson that he can't make them very quickly. Because of that, and because they may be pulling in the reins, if that's possible with Trump, uh, is, is that why this Bank of Canada survey that came out today that says the Canadian businesses plan on investing in hiring this year, is, is that creating some sense of optimism instead of the, uh, the concern that we felt uh, after November the 8th last year? Yeah. So, Bill, you know the old expression, the devil you know versus the devil you don't. Yeah. Uh, what we know is just putting Trump into a little box off to the side, if I can, for half a second, sure. that Canada's economy is showing some remarkable signs of robustness. We've seen growth. In, in November, December, and January, growth higher than we were expecting before. Uh, we're seeing surveys of confidence within the business community higher than before. We're seeing trade numbers higher than we thought we would see before. Those three months are beginning to show positive momentum. So I think the survey that you're talking about is based on the fact that people say, since I don't know what Trump's going to do, if I look at the what I'll call the regular tea leaves, the ones that I normally monitor, things are looking really good, so much so, Bill, that I think by the end of this year, you'll even see the Bank of Canada raise interest rates by uh, 25 basis points or a quarter of a percent. Now, the wild card in this remains Donald Trump. But I think people have watched him <laughs> <laughs> watched his talk, if you will, and watched his walk. And his talk, though very disruptive, is not at all matched by his walk. And I think people are saying, you know, I may have been over-worried about Donald. So for the moment, they are discounting anything he said and discounting the Trump effect in the economy. They're more focused on the fundamentals the way they've used to. Now, this could all change in a heartbeat, Bill, and I think that's worth everyone remembering. Uh, Donald Trump is such a unpredictable character, and his fortunes are so unpredictable. If the Republicans suddenly sort of rallied behind him and seemed to be ready to make his agenda a reality, I think all those fears would come rolling back. But for the moment, it looks like he's much more uh, uh, almost a, a person yelling out in the wilderness without a troop following him. So we've discounted him, and I think this is why so many people are feeling good about the economy at this time. Well, also, and to go back to your reference to the health care bill that, uh, that got stalled in the Congress, uh, that, I think, sends a, a loud message, I think, not just to the White House, but I guess to the international economic community, too, that uh, that this Congress is not going to roll over and do whatever the president wants them to do. Uh, if, they, if they can kill the health care bill, they're obviously not going to pay much attention to some of his economic procedures and, and some of the initiatives that he's talking about, too. So... Uh, that, 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 I think, would probably give some encouragement to Canadian business, too, to realize that, hey, there's, there's some smarter people down there that understand the big picture. Right. And, and let me add just one more. If I move away Donald Trump, there's another storm cloud on the horizon, and that's called Brexit. Yeah. Well, we, we saw them uh, last week file their uh, uh, brief to, to begin the process of leaving. And what happened was we woke up the next day and, hey, the world didn't fall apart. So I think, again, people anticipating Brexit was anticipating the worst, and they were anticipating the worst very quickly. Well, wait a minute. Nothing's really changed, and Donald Trump isn't the evil force. And I think people are realizing that their fears were exactly that, unsubstantiated fears, and they're feeling better. Now, again, it can all fall apart if the reality roars back into it. But if the reality remains what we've seen so far, I think this is going to be a relatively good year for the Canadian economy might be the best year we've seen since uh, 2008. 
Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, thanks as always. Great having you on the show again. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.